Welcome to the Making Connections News Mountain Talk. I'm your host, Mimi Pickering. Making Connections News stories focus on opportunities and challenges for building a thriving economy and healthy communities in the coal fields. One of the biggest challenges is the failure of the state of Kentucky to properly invest in our people and our places due to an inadequate tax system that has led to repeated budget cuts. In this episode, I'm speaking with Jason Bailey and Dustin Pugel from the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy about these state tax and budget issues, as well as proposed changes to health and safety net programs that impact low and moderate income families. According to its mission statement, the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy, or KSEP, seeks to improve the quality of life for all Kentuckians through research, analysis, and education on important policy issues facing the Commonwealth. Jason Bailey is founder and executive director. Jason's comments appear frequently in the news media, and he's a regular speaker to civic organizations on the critical economic and fiscal issues facing Kentucky. He served on the Governor's Blue Ribbon Commission on Tax Reform and the Kentucky Teachers Retirement System Funding Work Group. As we were preparing this episode, Kentucky Governor Matt Bevan announced a special legislative session to deal with public employee pensions. Governor Bevan's efforts to change Kentucky teachers' and public employees' health and retirement plans has been probably the most heated issue in Kentucky for the past two years. I asked Jason Bailey for his thoughts on what has become known as the Kentucky pension crisis. We didn't put the money into the pension system for a long time, and we have begun to do that now. Unfortunately, we've done it by cutting other things rather than actually raising the revenue. Um, But when it comes to the pensions, now that we're funding it, if we continue to just stay on the course we're on with the funding, um, we don't have to do anything else. Um, We just have to be consistent. And over time, they will improve, the funding will improve, and we'll be able to um, protect the benefits that are important to attracting and retaining a skilled workforce and ensuring people have retirement security. Um, It's as simple as that. But... There's clearly an agenda to uh, roll back pensions, to eliminate the pension system, to potentially challenge the inviolable contract that people were hired under, uh, which they're legally and morally obligated to their benefits. And um, that push will continue. And I think we'll see it next year, and we'll see it with another attempt to cope uh, teacher pensions. Um, and so it's, it's not over yet. Although the Bevan administration claims Kentucky is experiencing an economic revival, KSEP's analysis of the state economy indicates otherwise. I asked Jason to describe what KSEP's research shows. I mean, we are in one of the longest economic recoveries on record um, in terms of the country, and Kentucky has certainly benefited to some extent from that. Things are better overall than they were in the pit of the Great Recession in 2010 or 2011, but um, we haven't fully recovered, and the recovery that we've had has tended to be more in the metro areas, in the Golden Triangle, Lexington, Louisville, uh, Northern Kentucky, Bowling Green area have been where most of the job growth has been. Uh, Rural Kentucky really has not recovered its jobs at all. Um, there are many counties in Kentucky that have 20 to 30 percent fewer jobs than they had before the recession hit. Um, and 
it's also the case that when it comes to job quality, um, many of the jobs that uh, are being created um, don't necessarily pay enough for folks to live on, and we're still not seeing wage growth uh, in the economy as a whole. So if we are having um, some uh, recovery, at least in some places, is the state budget in better shape? The state budget is not in better shape. I mean, we are um, we are looking at uh, when we come, the legislature meets again in January to create a new two-year budget, another round of cuts. In fact, prob- probably um, the biggest round we've seen so far. Um, so, uh, and there are a number of reasons for that. I mean, one is that the legislature passed some more tax cuts uh, this this session. They gave a big tax cut to banks and other corporations uh, that basically got no public hearing and no scrutiny and will result in a huge amount of lost revenue. Um, We also are trying to pay back underfunded pension plans, and that's sucking up uh, a lot of the new dollars that are generated uh, with growth in the economy are going to pensions instead of going to public services. Uh, and in general, we have a tax code that even if the economy were going gangbusters, it doesn't generate uh, the revenue to keep up because there are just too many holes. Um, there are too many holes that have been poked in over the years um, for primarily for special interests of different kinds, and those just drain how much we have to collect. Where is it that um, you see hurt in Kentucky? Where is it that um, this lack of revenue or these cuts are mm-hmm. having an impact? Well, there's just there are so many core services of the state that have received round after round of budget cuts, and we have um, areas that have been cut from 15 to 50 percent at this point. And so, uh, the things that we need and count on and rely on. Um, the people aren't there in, off, in many cases to provide the services. A good example is in the area of public health, where Kentucky has a number of, frankly, public health crises. When you look at um, the opioid epidemic, when you look at hepatitis C, when you look at hepatitis A, um, that requires a front line of employees in public health departments that are out there getting people the vaccinations, that are out there dealing with um, people helping people get treatment, uh, and we've cut uh, about a 1,000 health department employees uh, in, in the last decade through, through these rounds of budget cuts. There are about 700 more that are on slate to be cut, laid off uh, next year, according to the commissioner. And that has made those problems worse. I mean, the hepatitis A crisis, Kentucky has one-third of all hepatitis A deaths in the nation. And, you know, that's because we're not out there uh, stopping it when it happens. Uh, and, you know, when we have people, uh, cases of HIV, cases of, case of hepatitis C, those are very expensive to treat, not to mention deadly in, in, in cases. Um, on the back end, they're not expensive to prevent on the front end, but we're taking those dollars out, and, and, that, and those are the kind of problems we see as a result. Do you think that the average sort of citizen and taxpayer in Kentucky is is starting to make connections here or or see the impact? I think so. I mean, I think that the teacher protests of last year and that really continue are about pensions but also about cuts that we've seen in schools, about the general, the round after round of um, 
you know, lack of uh, raises, of, of services being cut um, that um, used to be available in, in many communities. Um, and I think that was an example of people being tired of what has ha what's happening and what, what the impact is on the community. Um, I think we need, you know, there needs to be more of that. And there often isn't an understanding of where tax dollars go, you know, how, um, what happens when we cut taxes uh, and the connection between the services that people rely on, the, the extent to which there's clean water coming out of the tap, extent to which the road you're driving on it doesn't have potholes that those things are caused are, are a result of not having um, having or not having the tax dollars there so somewhat of a disconnect but I do think there's more frustration um, bubbling over that you see saw with the teacher protests that may indicate um, you know and, and the legislature had to had to put a little bit more money in education than they had originally planned to as a result of that so when folks do get organized and they speak out, I think that the decision makers do have to respond. In this year's legislature, they provided a, a number of tax breaks mm -hmm. or tax cuts, particularly for banks. Mm -hmm. What's the economic rationale for that, or is there one? Well, there was a, a, rob, lob, an, a rationale that the lobbyists use, which was that we're losing our community banks, and therefore we need to cut taxes on them. Uh, the reality is we are losing our community banks. We've been losing them for decades um, because of interstate banking deregulation, because of the concentration of wealth. Um, banking, just like every other sector, is being bought up by a few, you know, large corporations, and that's no different in, um, in banking. It doesn't have to do with the state taxes. Um, and when they cut the tax, they actually eliminated a tax that was on banks that cost over, that raised over $100 million. It didn't just benefit a locally owned bank. Uh, it benefited every bank because they all paid it. So the bank with the most deposits in Kentucky is J.P. Morgan Chase. Well, J.P. Morgan Chase got an enormous windfall from that. Uh, so did Bank of America. Uh, and, and that's um, an unfortunate result of sort of lobbyists dictating public policy, getting talking to legislators behind closed doors, giving enormous amounts of money to campaign contributions. And there's a good reason that bill never had a public hearing, um, because they didn't want the truth of what it would actually do to be heard and debated in the, in the public, uh, and, and I'd rather pass it on the very end of the session in, a, in, the, in, the, in the course of about a single day. So basically, there is no economic rationale, really. There is no, there is no rationale, and even Kentucky banks, Kentucky charter banks, are seeing record profits. Um, they're doing okay, and there are certainly well-known, old naming name names, but well-known Kentucky millionaires who own Kentucky banks. <laughs> they're doing all right, you know, um, and they didn't need another tax cut, especially when you look at so many places where we need money in the budget. That that, um, you know, tens of millions about net of about $50 million loss um, is going to come from. It's going to come from these public health needs. It's going to come from the schools um, and the social workers and, and the other things that we know we need. So it seems like for at least the last um, maybe 30 years, we've been um, operating under the 
assumptions that tax cuts lead to growth and mm -hmm. better revenue for Kentucky. And um, is there any evidence of that? There isn't. I mean, that, that's been sort of the dominant, you know, trickle-down philosophy that if we give more tax breaks and tax cuts to wealthy people and corporations that they will take that um, take those monies and turn them into jobs and it just it hasn't been the case anywhere um, in fact we've seen spectacular failures in other states of that Kansas being the most recent example where they gave again huge tax cuts and and said that it would be a shot of adrenaline to the heart of the economy and it didn't happen I mean they had um, what they had was massive budget cuts and a court ruling that their schools school funding was unconstitutional and we've seen the same thing here. It's been sort of slower and, you know, one episode after another of a new tax break or tax cut, uh, and they've added up to to what we have now. Uh, we have the third worst cut in public school funding in the, in the, in the country over the last decade. Um, and so what that does in terms of your economy is it undermines the foundation of growth. Um, which are these institutions that keep people educated, get people healthy, um, provide the infrastructure of a modern that a modern economy needs. Um, all those things are undermined when you have less revenue as a result. And the truth is that wealthy people and corporations, uh, when you give them a tax cut, they are more likely to just save that money, um, to give uh, dividends to their shareholders or do stock buybacks with their shareholders and not reinvest that in, in any sort of job creation. I guess the other thing we've heard is uh, that the Kentucky government is full of waste, fraud, and abuse. People argue that, you know, that they're inefficient or ineffective, and then, but when you give them even less money, sometimes it's even harder. It's harder to attract people. There's an exodus of state workers because they don't get raises. Um, some of the best and brightest leave or they retire before they would really otherwise want to because they don't aren't given the tools to do the job. Um, you know, we have situations in Kentucky where our jails are so overcrowded um, that, you know, there, there are real questions about um, whether there are human rights violations in place, uh, where the caseloads of public defenders are so high that, you know, people who arrested and can't afford an attorney, you know, are not really given fair representation. So you have people leaving the public defender bar because they can't, um, in good conscience, say that they're properly representing their, their clients. So I think that that's a myth. Um, it was, you know, in any large institution, there's always some ways you can tighten things up, but there's no question that we've seen cuts, budget cuts that have reduced and eliminated services uh, and reduced the quality of the services that we have. Yet in Eastern Kentucky, where of course we've lost the severance tax, which we shouldn't have been depending on in that way, but, and there's a real infrastructure crisis going mm -hmm. on in Martin County, probably the strongest example, but it's really all over. And I wonder what will, what will we do? Yeah, I mean, it used to be the case that there would be monies in the state budget for using coal severance and other resources for water and sewer system improvements. Um, it's just not possible to address those 
problems at a local level anymore in the in East Kentucky. The the tax base isn't there. You know, it, it, the property tax revenues are way down. Um, some of those some localities are taxing at very high levels in terms of their rate, but it just doesn't generate very much. So it just goes back to the state and the state's ability and willingness. The state has the ability to raise the revenue if you look at the economy as a whole. Um, what it doesn't have is the willingness to do that. Um, and I don't see another way. Um, I just think that the, the, the deficit is too big. You're, you're going to see that again in the school systems um, in eastern Kentucky, not having the money um, next year. Uh, and basic local services are not fundable um, because of the collapse in the coal economy and then what was already not there even before that. Um, and we didn't mention what's happened with college tuition rates. How does Kentucky stack up with other states? Well, we we've have it is one of the taxes that we've increased, uh, you know, to deal with this. Uh, some of the biggest cuts have been to higher education in terms of the state budget. We've cut about a third of the state funding that used to go in higher education is now gone. And so what the colleges and universities have done is, is raise tuition over and over and over again. Tuition is a couple hundred percent higher than it was, you know, a few decades ago. And so that just translates into, um, well, for some people, um, an inability to go, an inability to finish their degree. Um, for other people, it's just more student loan debt um, that people carry with them the bulk of their lives. Uh, and that is you know, a real drag, I think, on the economy as a whole when people don't, aren't able to afford um, to start a business, to buy a home, uh, to save for their ret own retirement or their children's college because they're still carrying these student loan uh, debt loads. That drags the whole economy down. But that's one, one of the many fallouts of just not having the revenue on the front end like we used to have to support an affordable uh, access to college for many. We've always kind of been behind in the sense of not investing in, in some of these things, and that you see it, you saw it in our education levels um, that have always been, you know, uh, educational attainment has always been lower than Kentucky than in the rest of the country. Um, and so we had some catching up to do. In 1990, we raised a lot of new revenue, about a billion dollars, that still didn't make us a high-tax state, but did mean that we were um, committing to public education in a new way. And, you know, pretty much uh, within a few years after that is when we just started cutting taxes. Uh, you know, in the, starting in the mid-90s, um, we just started eating away at that. And there's really been nothing since then that's been a revenue raiser. We've raised the tobacco tax a few times, but that doesn't really generate much in the way of revenue. And people are quitting smoking, which is a good thing. Um, so it doesn't really solve anything long-term uh, on the revenue side. Uh, so, But there's nothing else that we've done except cut, and that's kind of how we've gotten in this, this state that we're in. Are there other states around us or um, somewhat similar that are have done things differently and are in a different position? Well, historically, there, there ha have been, for sure. I mean, North Carolina did for a long time up until 2010. You know, it, it did have... A progressive income tax um, 
that was higher than Kentucky's, and they used that to invest in education and infrastructure, and that helped create the strongest economy in the South. Um, they've done a lot to roll that back in the last decade, so they're no longer the example they once were. Um, but there are states in other parts of the country, like Minnesota, that have <clears throat> truly uh, invested. And if you compare Minnesota to Wisconsin, which is really more, in, in recent years, has taken more of the Kentucky route, uh, big cuts, big tax cuts, big budget cuts, um, Minnesota's growing and Wisconsin isn't. So I think there are some examples you can see out there, but there are even more so there are counterexamples, um, states that have um, done what Kentucky has done, cut, and then see see themselves fall down the list of um, of states when it comes to the things that we care about: a strong economy, a good quality of life, um, and uh, and good communities. This is Mimi Pickering. I've been speaking with Jason Bailey, Executive Director of the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy. On July 11th, Kentucky State Budget Director announced a $200 million budget surplus from tax revenue in fiscal year 2019. Although this is good news, according to the Courier-Journal, it represents less than 2% above the tax revenue that was anticipated and largely comes from one-time monies and an increase in the cigarette tax. Although many Kentucky communities are feeling the impact of round after round of budget cuts, there has been a bright spot. That is the huge number of Kentuckians who have received health care through the Affordable Care Act and Medicaid expansion. In fact, in Letcher County, where WMMT is based, 66% of children and 44% of adults were covered by Medicaid in 2016. I asked Dustin Pugel, policy analyst at KSEP, to talk about the importance of this health insurance program and the potential impact of changes that Governor Bevin is proposing. With the passage of the ACA in, in, in 2009, we, we had the opportunity to expand Medicaid coverage to, to all kinds of folks that didn't have it before. So, you know, for example, if you were a, a homeless man, you made nothing. You had a you know, poverty level of zero. You, had, you made no money. You could not get Medicaid unless you were deemed disabled or, you know, one of these special categories. Um, and there were a lot of people like this. Um, and so what the ACA did is it said anybody who earns up to 138% of the poverty level, which is a little over $16,000 for an individual, um, you can have Medicaid coverage if your state decides to do that. And states, if you decide to do that, we will pay for 90% of it. You just pay for 10%. And, and even better, we'll pay for 100% for the first couple of years, and then we'll ramp up after that. And so in 2013, um, our governor at the time decided to do it, and it was a huge success. We, we signed up at its peak over half a million people, and that had a huge impact on our health as a state, you know, and a lot of the health rankings that are out there, Kentucky climbed several spots because all of a sudden people had access to a doctor when they needed one. They were getting care for chronic conditions. There were fewer hospitalizations related to asthma and hypertension. There were fewer breast cancer deaths. Our infant mortality rate dropped. I mean, it was just a, it was an amazing uh, uh, opportunity for our health. The other thing it did was it opened up um, opportunities for drug treatment that never existed before. I mean, the um, uh, number of drug treatments paid for by Medicaid increased by 500% in the first two years of our, of our expansion. 
So this it was a huge deal for our health. It was also a big deal for our economy. I mean, you there, there were 16,000 more jobs after the fact. You know, if you look at the same time prior to that, we had only gained about 300 jobs. And, of course, there are a lot of other things going on in the economy. But having uh, an influx of $3.5 billion in Medicaid <laughs> didn't hurt anything. I mean, that was a big deal. A lot of our rural hospitals probably would have shut their doors if we hadn't had this. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of really great research to show that operating margins increased. And then, you know, of course, that had a ripple effect in the rest of the economy. You know, that, that money doesn't just, like, vanish. It goes into people's pockets, and then they buy groceries, they buy cars, they, you know, go to the movies, they do all kinds of stuff. And so this had a really big impact on other parts of the community. And, you know, if you if you just want a really localized example of this, I think um, uh, Hazard's a really great place to look. You know, there's that spot called Hospital Hill, and, you know, in the early 2000s, you know, there were a couple clinics there, and, you know, you, it was obviously an established place, but after expansion, it just boomed, and, you know, there were all these new buildings, all these new services being offered, a lot more people being hired, and then those people don't leave the community. They stay there, and so, you know, it, it had an impact beyond just, um, you know, just the people who are being able to get treatment for the first time for, for whatever. So, um, you know, all that has been really important, and, you know, Medicaid um, enrollment had been growing for years uh, up until 2018 when it peaked in about March or April and then started to trail off. So at its peak, there were over 500,000 people enrolled in Medicaid expansion, which is this new category of of, uh, low-income folks, um, and about uh, 1.4 million Kentuckians total. So about one in three people in Kentucky were able to get to a doctor because of Medicaid. About half a million of those are kids. So this is not, you know, we're not talking about all kinds of folks. We're talking about, you know, Kentuckians in every walk of life. We're talking about older folks who, who get use Medicaid for uh, nursing home care and in-home care. We're talking about people with disabilities who don't have to go into a nursing home. who can stay in their community and use Medicaid for that. We're talking about a lot of kids. About, I think it's uh, just shy of 45% of all births in Kentucky are paid for by Medicaid. Um, and then we're talking about a large group of working-age adults who are working. Um, the majority of folks on Medicaid expansion are working, but they lo- work in low-income jobs that don't provide health insurance and they can't afford it elsewhere. Um, so, you know, a lot of construction workers are covered by Medicaid. A lot of retail workers are covered by Medicaid. A lot of people who work in grocery stores are covered by Medicaid. Um, a lot of people who work in schools are covered by Medicaid. So, um, you know, it's, a, it's kind of the Swiss Army knife of healthcare, and it's been a huge uh, benefit. Um, you know, starting in 2018, enrollment started to drop, and it dropped pretty quickly at first, and it started to level out. Some of that has to do with an improving economy. Um, you know, there have been steadily improving, um, you know, job growth in, in Kentucky, and there have been wages that have um, started to slowly grow. But, you know, I think folks are concerned in Kentucky and, and nationally that, you know, there may be some other things going on. There may be some administrative changes happening, um, you know, from the caseworker's desk, if you will, where they sit down and they make determinations and they've got all these um, paperwork hurdles that are uh, done. Now, I don't, you know, it's can't say that for sure, but, you know, there has been some reporting and some research in other places that have shown that that's true. And, you know, I, I worry a little bit that an improving economy doesn't tell the whole story. But that's, you know, to, to be determined. Nonetheless, still about 1.3 million Kentuckians are covered by Medicaid. It still does an amazing job at 
efficiently providing quality health care um, that saves lives and improves the quality of life, you know, make sure kids can get to the doctor, uh, cut our uninsured rate by two-thirds, reduce uncompensated care at hospital. It's just a really, uh, it's really an important part of our economy and it's an important part of our healthcare puzzle. You know, we've had Medicaid expansion since 2014. So in the last five years, you know, we're talking about billions of dollars going into Eastern Kentucky through Medicaid alone. And I don't know that that, you could say that for ARC or ARC. Um, I don't know that you could say that about, you know, any kind of grants or economic development incentives that are that are um, thrown that way. I think it really, like you, you said, I think it's a, a, a very underappreciated economic development tool. And, you know, the other thing is that with a lot of these uh, new jobs that are, you know, being created, a lot of the wages are kind of dubious, you know, like you're not, we're not sure how much people are getting paid. Uh, a lot of times the quality of those jobs is, is um, up in the air. But, you know, if you look at the average wage of a health, somebody who works in the healthcare industry, it's much higher than the average wage elsewhere. So we're talking about pretty good jobs on the whole. I mean, there are some healthcare jobs that are kind of crummy, but on the whole, they're, they're good jobs that pay well and um, provide a lot of economic security for them and, and then obviously for, like we were talking about, ripple effects for the people in their communities. Governor Bevan asked the federal government for what's called a waiver. If approved, this would allow his administration to make changes to the Medicaid expansion program. You know, the state wants to um, change how people get and keep their, uh, you know, health care. And, um, you know, the proposals have really centered around barriers to care. So things like requiring that you report a certain number of uh, hours of work or volunteer service per month in order to keep your benefits, requirement that you pay a premium uh, if you're above the poverty line, um, requirements that you uh, make sure you report any relevant changes, uh, and if you don't do that, you know, in a month, then you lose your coverage, and then um, a requirement that you re-enroll within a certain window on time. And, um, you know, all those were also coupled with some benefit losses, so people are going to lose dental and vision coverage. They're going to lose non-emergency medical transportation, which has just helped get into doctor's appointments and dialysis and you know, counseling, substance use disorder treatment, all that kind of stuff. And, um, and then also something called retroactive eligibility, which just means that they'll back pay some of your bills. If you go to the doctor and you don't have health coverage, they find out you're, you're covered for Medicaid, then, you know, they would turn around and, um, you know, pay those, which was really important financial protection for, for folks who otherwise might go bankrupt. So, you know, all these were, were um, you know, in the works for years. There was a lot of conversation about it. It was finally approved. And then, um, you know, a group of 16 Kentuckians sued uh, the federal government saying you didn't have the right to do this. You didn't listen to our comments when we, you know, submitted those. And ultimately, a federal judge in D.C. said, yeah, we, you, you know, you shouldn't have done this and I'm not going to let it move forward. So that's kind of where we are now. Um, there's a, uh, a case right now in the D.C. Court of Appeals um, trying to change that, um, but nothing is really going to happen until this fall, maybe September, October. And then, of course, there's a there's a gubernatorial election happening right now, and um, you know the um, all three Democratic candidates had said before the primary that they were going to reverse the waiver on day one, and um, so you know if if um, Andy Bashir wins, he will 
likely put a halt to this. If Governor Brevin wins, I'm, I'm guessing they'll continue with their, um, you know, law suit to try and, you know, get these changes back. The other um, big change that has happened with Medicaid this year is that they've started charging copays for services. So uh, anywhere between a dollar and I think, I mean, it, it can get up to $50 or more depending on the service and how many times you use it. Um, and that has been, you know, anecdotally, it's been very disruptive for folks. Um, you know, technically, they're not allowed to charge you. They're not allowed to make you pay the copay if you're below the poverty line, which is about $12,000 for an individual. Um, but a lot of people don't know that. <laughs> so they'll go to the pharmacy. They'll try and get their medicines, and they'll be told, no, you, you have to pay this copay. And, you know, they just go away empty-handed because a lot of people don't have an extra few dollars if you're only making about $1,000 a month so um, or less. So there's a, you know, it's been very difficult, I think, for a lot of people to manage. And, and you know, I think it's a hassle for a lot of providers and a lot of the companies that uh, they're called managed care organizations. They, they handle Medicaid on behalf of the state. Um, you know, they, they had the option to collect copays before this, and none of them did because they knew it was a, it was a hassle. It's hard, hard to do. It's really frustrating for the patients. Um, and um, so they decided not to. So the state making it mandatory really has been disruptive in a lot of ways. So I think that's probably what, what people would be encountering right now more than anything. So what are the rationales for um, cutting back the program? Well, it kind of depends on who you ask and on, on what day you ask them. Um, uh, you know, we I've heard reasons that range from um, the idea that uh, Medicaid is somehow unsustainable or that, you know, Medicaid was, you know, they, they almost use like an originalist view of Medicaid. It wasn't intended for this. Or you'll hear people talk about how Medicaid um, uh, is a is some kind of a handout that, that they don't want people to have. And, you know, I just, I don't find any of those arguments convincing or compelling. I think uh, we really can't afford not to have Medicaid We've shown that we can afford Medicaid because we've paid for it through multiple budget cycles now. Um, uh, you know, Medicaid is, like we are saying, a huge economic engine, so we really can't afford not to have it. Um, when people are sicker, then they are less likely to be able to work. And, and we know out of um, studies from places like Ohio and Michigan that people reported that because they had Medicaid, they were more able to work and they were more likely to look for a job with better wages that advanced their careers. Um, and anecdotally, I know that's true here too. Um, and then, you know, this idea that we're handing something out, I think is is um, not very helpful. I, I think, you know, Medicaid is a, is a um, healthcare policy. It's a way of making sure that our neighbors and loved ones are, are well. And I think all of us will likely end up on Medicaid at some point in our life if we haven't already been on it as kids. So, you know, this really is something that benefits everyone, um, not just the people who are immediately using it. Um, and, you know, it is a program that is available to all of us should we need it at some point in our life. Um, I think uh, over half of nursing home bills are paid for by Medicaid. So, you know, and a lot of us are going to end up in the nursing home. A lot of us are going to end up needing in-home care as older folks. And, um, you know, that's that's what it is. That's what it's there for. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know that these 
these arguments really um, hold water if you look at them, especially when you look at how beneficial Medicaid's been for the Commonwealth over the last five years. And, and you know, since we adopted Medicaid originally in the 60s, I think it's really been, um, uh, it's had a long history of, of effectiveness. Um, you know, with when, when people make arguments about work requirements in particular, you know, a lot of them talk about how, um, you know, we, we think that if we um, make folks who are um, receiving this kind of help go out and get a job, then, you know, they're going to become more self-sufficient. They're not going to need these benefits. Well, that, there are all kinds of problems with that line of thinking. One is that most people who are using these benefits are working. Um, the ones who aren't working are usually retired or they're students or they're not well um, or they're out looking for a job. Um, that's certainly true in places like eastern Kentucky where we've seen just an enormous number of jobs leave the area. And, you know, there's still people there who want to work and are trying to work and um, are trying to get jobs that pay better and provide for their family. And, you know, it's just not as easy as it used to be. Um, and, uh, you know, the other the other sort of misnomer about that is that somehow requiring work or requiring that people prove that they're working will mean that they can get those jobs. And, uh, you know, that doesn't magically create jobs. It doesn't magically make them eligible for a new industry. It doesn't magically help, um, you know, move uh, people into areas where there are more jobs. You know, if we really wanted to support people in their work, we would do things like put more resources into job training and uh, make higher education more affordable. We would provide supports like childcare uh, in meaningful ways, we would look to other states that are that are really successful in uh, creating and maintaining large numbers of uh, new jobs, and try and emulate what what they're doing. Like I think there's a good um, program in Montana, for example, that that's working out pretty well. And none of these are threats, you know. These are all supports, and I think that's really what people need. You know, people know what they're good at. People know what they like doing. People know how to work and they want to work, especially Kentuckians, I think, um, you know, to, to try and push them into that by, um, you know, threats of taking away medical assistance <laughs> or threats to take away food assistance are just not useful. But yeah, I just don't think that there's any meaningful evidence to show that these are uh, the right tool for, you know, a goal that I think all of us hold in common, which is to make sure that our our neighbors are taken care of and there are good jobs that they can avail themselves of and, and jump into and, um, you know, contribute to their communities. SNAP, what we used to call food stamps, is another program of vital importance to low-income Kentuckians that is undergoing changes, with more to come. Here is a report from Kentucky News Connect on the increasing number of children and adults who are food insecure. More than 600,000 Kentuckians, many of them children, are going hungry. That's according to a new Map the Meal Gap report by Feeding America, which looked at food insecurity in all 120 counties in the state. The report found McGoffin County had the highest rate of food insecurity at 22.5 percent. Oldham County had the least number of people going hungry at 7.6 percent. Jamie Sizemore of Feeding America says families working minimum wage or low income 
low-income jobs are struggling the most because many do not qualify for federal food assistance or SNAP benefits. What we're finding is we're seeing more and more working families that are just scraping to get by, living paycheck to paycheck. And so what frequently happens is they may have something happen in their household like a car breaking down. Food just typically is the last thing on the list. The number of food insecure people living in Kentucky remains higher than the rest of the country. Nationwide, 78 percent of counties with the highest rates of food insecurity are rural, according to the report. Children are especially vulnerable when it comes to hunger. According to the report, food insecurity among Kentucky children is 18 percent, compared with 15 percent for the overall population. During the summer, children don't have access to regular school nutrition programs. Currently, the federal summer food service program helps feed children in need when school is not in session. But Sizemore says the program's strict requirements on how and when children can be fed don't always align with life in rural communities. Right now, it has to be a congregated meal. They have to actually sit down and serve that meal. That's just not viable when you're living in rural Kentucky. So we're working really hard to try to feed those people, but it's just a Band-Aid. We've got to get to the root causes. We've got to look for other ways. And until we do that, food insecurity is going to persist. The rising cost of a meal is another contributor to food insecurity. The report found that since 2017, food prices have been steadily inching upward. For Public News Service, I'm Nadia Ramlagan. KSAP policy analyst Dustin Pugel describes the changes with the SNAP program. SNAP is uh, it's the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. It's food assistance. We used to call it food stamps. Um, the way it works now is that you get a little card and they put a little bit of money on that every month. It's only supposed to replace about a third of your food budget. It, it averages out to about a, a dollar and thirty-two cents per person per meal, so we're not talking about a lot of money. Um, and there's only certain things you can buy with it too. You can really just buy groceries. You can't, uh, you you really you literally cannot buy cigarettes or alcohol or, or some of these other things that I think people tell stories about. You, you buy groceries. You buy milk. You buy bread. Most research shows that people who use SNAP to buy their groceries buy the same kinds of groceries we all do. Um, yeah, they buy pop, but we all buy pop. I mean, if you look at, if you look at, um, you know, the statistics, a lot of people who don't use SNAP buy a lot of Coke, and and people on SNAP buy that, but they also buy meats, and they buy, you know, cereal, and they buy milk, and they buy, you know, fruits and veggies. So, um, you know, it, it supplements their their normal food budget. It gets it replaces a portion of it just to make sure that they can afford groceries. And as far as a tool to combat hunger and make sure people have food in the fridge, it's very effective. Um, folks who use SNAP to help buy groceries are far more food secure than folks who are not, um, which has all kinds of implications, not just you know, implications for their family budget, but also implications for health. We know that people who use SNAP uh, to, to buy groceries are, tend to be healthier than, than the similar folks who don't. Um, which seems really common sense. You know, when people are well-fed, they're, they're healthier than people who are starving. It's just, you know, it's hard to, uh, you know, it's a pretty straightforward point. So, uh, but it's true. So, um, you know, we mentioned the, the mid-90s when um, uh, President Clinton signed the Welfare Reform Act into law. Part of that was to require that um, folks who are, are using SNAP to help get their groceries 
show the government that they're working a certain number of hours per, per month. Um, these are folks who don't have a disability, they don't have any dependents, and they're aged 18 to 49. Now, um, when an area, usually a county um, or a group of counties, um, is having a hard time with jobs, so there are more available workers and there are available jobs, or you have a, a traditionally high rate of unemployment in those areas, states can ask the federal government to waive the requirement to say, you know, we need to give these people a break because if we don't, they're not going to be able to eat because there just aren't enough jobs for them. And there are parts of Kentucky that have always been waived from the beginning. They have never had to comply with this requirement because, you know, as you and I know, it's just been hard. It's been really economically hard for a lot of counties, especially in rural Kentucky and especially in eastern Kentucky. So um, what happened in starting in 2016 um, was uh, after the Great Recession, you know, every county in Kentucky was waived. You know, nobody had to comply with this because there just weren't a lot of jobs around. But as the recovery really sped up, you know, first the urban areas, uh, those waivers expired and people had to start showing that they were working again. Um, a few more counties were expired in 2017, but in, in 2018, 92 of the 120 counties were expired within the span of just a few months. And um, when that happened, we really saw a rapid decline in those folks being able to use SNAP benefits. Um, in fact, between January of 2018 and March of 2019, 21,400 people were booted from SNAP because they didn't comply with this requirement, this new requirement for them, um, which is a lot of people. It's about the same number of people as live in Ashland, Kentucky. I mean, it's that's not a trivial number of folks, especially when you consider the number of folks who um, potentially could have been kicked off of this, which at the beginning was about 60,000. So we're talking about around one in three folks um, who potentially could have lost these benefits, losing these benefits, which just means that it was that much harder for them to be able to afford groceries. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about how well do they feed themselves. Um, and when you are, um, you know, requiring this and people are moving off, you're making it harder for them to buy groceries. And, and that means you're making it that much harder for them to um, get and stay healthy. So um, uh, there are now 112 out of the 120 counties for which this is a requirement. There are eight counties in southeastern Kentucky called the Path to Promise Zone or the Promise Zone. Um, there's a special grant that um, is looking at how maybe using certain work supports like child care, like job counseling, like um, you know some wraparound services, transportation help that are really useful in um, uh, people getting employed and, and staying in a, in a good job and advancing their career. While that is going on, they're not allowed to expire those waivers. So that's why they haven't gone yet. My assumption is, and I, I think the administration has said as much, that when that pilot program is finished, then they'll allow those to expire as well, meaning every county in the state will be expired. Now, this is a choice. I mean, we didn't have to do this. Um, I've asked national experts, you know, if we were to ask for waivers today about how many of our counties would would um, be approved, and it could be as many as 117 out of 120 counties, uh, which means there's only three counties in the in the state where they would say no. Um, so we 
don't have to be doing this. We could absolutely be making it as um, uh, widely available as possible for folks to get help at the grocery store, which, by the way, is, again, an economic factor. I mean, if we are uh, using this money to buy groceries at the grocery store, that means that those groceries are being bought, those store owners are being paid that much more. In any given month, we spend about $60 million on groceries through SNAP, which ripples through the rest of the economy. So, um, you know, this is not a, um, we're not talking about a little bit of money here. Uh, it is a little bit of money for the folks who use it. Um, but, you know, there's about uh, 550,000 folks who use SNAP uh, in any given month in Kentucky. So this is a lot of folks. And this is, again, you know, a lot of kids, a lot of working age folks, and a lot of seniors. Um, so people in every walk of life. Uh, making it harder for them to get groceries doesn't help anybody. The majority of counties in eastern Kentucky are, are what are called um, labor surplus areas, which is actually one of the ways that the state can um, justify waiving these requirements for SNAP um, to the federal government is if a county is a labor surplus area. And, and you know, they, they calculate that in a certain way, but basically what it means is there's more available workers than there are available jobs. There's more folks out there who are looking for work than there are jobs to be able to fill. And, you know, that might not be true in every part of the state, but it's definitely true in eastern Kentucky on the whole. And, um, again, that kind of goes back to the idea of, you know, a, a work requirement at its, uh, you know, basis level is is supposed to be somehow a um, uh, incentive or really a disincentive to get people into jobs. But if the jobs aren't there, then what good does it do anybody? Uh, really all it's doing is reducing the economic activity in those communities when people don't have the money to buy those groceries or, you know, if these Medicaid work requirements do go into place, you know, that's less money in going into the healthcare sector, which then goes into other parts of the community. Um, you know, it's it's a very, in our in our understanding of how this policy works, it's a very counterproductive way of trying to lift people up. Um, if we really cared and we really wanted to make sure people were healthy and they were thriving and they were um, in good jobs, moving their careers forward, supporting their families, building, you know, vibrant communities, um, we would make sure that as many people were able to get to the doctor as, as they need to. We would make sure that there were as many people who could feed themselves and their families and their loved ones as possible. We would provide supports like childcare. We would make sure that transportation and broadband were, were there. We wouldn't be trying to undermine government services. We would be, you know, bolstering them and um, and really empowering people to, to pursue what they're, what they know they're good at, what they enjoy, what they um, uh, uh, wanted to be able to do to really support their communities. And I, you know, it's not what a work requirement is. <laughs> you know, we're here at Mayset, and I think that's really a uh, strong desire of theirs is to transition um, the region justly toward uh, an economy that works for everyone while not having to move people away. You know, let's let's do something here and now rather than, um, you know, sending everybody to UK and then to work in Lexington. Um, now, you know, that's not necessarily just an Eastern Kentucky problem, but, but it is certainly true for Eastern Kentucky. That was Dustin Pugel. He wanted to add that when Kentuckians speak up, they can make a difference. There were over 9,400 comments on the state's proposed changes to the Medicaid program. 
you know, one thing, um, j just by way of, I guess, um, gratitude, there, when the uh, federal judge struck down the barriers to care in, in the governor's Medicaid program, um, uh, it's called a waiver, but that gets confusing when you're talking about SNAP and those waivers. And anyways, uh, one thing he cited was just the large number of comments that people made about the waiver and what they're concerned about, um, the ways Medicaid has been beneficial to them and their loved ones and their communities. And, um, I, you know, that that it is almost impossible to overstate how important that was. And so I, I'm really, um, I just think it's incredible that people took the time to engage in this issue. And I think it also demonstrates how important this program is to so many people. Well, it just shows how important healthcare is to people. Um, and so, you know, there may be other opportunities for that in the future. Um, and I hope people take advantage of those uh, as we move forward. I think um, if the ACA repeal fight of 2017 or the waiver fight of 2018 taught us anything, it's that, um, you know, when people get involved, it makes a difference. And, and you know, it's we're not just talking about government programs. We're talking about lives. And it, and it really, um, I, I can't imagine it didn't save lives. In 2018, KSEP released an economic agenda for a thriving commonwealth, a report that includes a series of recommendations for public policies. The report says will build capacities, open up opportunities, and promote equity for all Kentuckians. I asked Jason to comment on the feasibility of making these changes. So, I mean, a lot of people will say, well, Kentucky is a poor state and always will be a poor state, and that's kind of live with it. But in your report that you did, um, you have a lot of recommendations. Um, could you talk about some other ways that we can get out of this situation? It is possible. It is have. possible, and there, and there are a number of things we can do that don't actually cost money that actually save money. Um, if you look, for example, in the, in the area of criminal justice reform, which is a, a significant part of this agenda, Kentucky has among the highest rates of incarceration in the country. It's extremely expensive, not to mention what it does to people's lives. There are a lot of states that are making progress in reducing the number of people in prison, uh, and it's not the states you would necessarily expect. I mean, it's even states like Mississippi, South Carolina that have enacted criminal justice reforms, reducing the sentencing on low-level nonviolent crimes, for example. Um, those sort of things would save a lot of money, free up a lot of money to, to reinvest in the things that do, do work, like education, um, and would also just keep people from out of that stumbling block of a, a prison sentence, which we know keeps them from being able to get jobs uh, and, and vote in this state and, uh, and move on to better opportunities. So there are things like that. We, we are uh, the state that um, is dead last in the share of the elderly that we allow to live in their homes, in the communities. We um, put people in nursing homes, which is extremely expensive uh, and is not what most people prefer. Um, we do it because the nursing home industry is a powerful lobby. We could save a lot of money and improve quality of life by um, doing what other states have done and moving more to community-based uh, care. That's the case with a lot of these things. Uh, if we focus more on the preventive side, put, focus more on public health, 
remove barriers to health coverage so people are getting primary and preventive care. We won't spend as much on the back end on incarceration and medication. Um, and so there are a lot of things like that that are in this agenda that don't necessarily cost money. Um, we also need money, and a big part of the plan is to um, clean up the tax code, which we have to do. We need to, um, we could generate a lot of money by asking those at the top to chip in, by closing loopholes, and we could pay for things like a reinvestment in education, two years of free um, community college to, uh, to every Kentucky that wants it, and um, you know, a wide variety of other uh, investments that are the kind of things we've cut over the last decade. Could you talk a little bit about how much um, of our, our money we give away, in a sense, with the, the tax breaks? There's a report every two years the state puts out called the Tax Expenditure Report that just adds up all the loopholes and exemptions and credits. And it is more money uh, that we give away in these various tax breaks than we actually collect in tax revenue. And we never revisit that side of the ledger. We never go back and close any of it or even question it. Um, it just goes in, some of it's been there for many decades. Um, there's a few things we probably would want to keep, like uh, the tax exemption on groceries or prescription drugs. But most of it is not that. You know, it's, it's, it's some kind of special interest has come in at some point in the past, like the banks did this year, and lobbied for what they wanted and, and gotten it. And, uh, and so that's a huge opportunity to just say, you know, sunset these things every two years. Uh, if the legislature doesn't act to keep it in place, it goes away. Um, and that way we can look more holistically at our budget, uh, the, the revenue side as well as the spending side on a regular basis, as opposed to just taking these core services, education, health, infrastructure, and just cutting them over and over and over again. You've been listening to Jason Bailey, Executive Director of the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy, and Dustin Pugel, a policy analyst at KSEF. An economic agenda for a thriving commonwealth, as well as other reports and updates on economic and fiscal issues facing Kentucky, can be found on the web at kypolicy.org. This and other stories about opportunities and challenges for diversifying Appalachia's economy and renewing our communities can be found at the Making Connections News website and podcast. This is Mimi Pickering reporting for Making Connections News in WMMT. Thanks for listening.